informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Happy Independence Day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in to AOA here on this 4th of July, 2022. I hope all of you are out there having some fun celebrating this great nation and truly enjoying the day because it is the 4th of July. However, we're not going to have a live show today on AOA. I've gone back through several of our interviews over the past two weeks. We're going to bring those back out today to highlight some of the issues that are a little more persistent in the world of agriculture. We're going to hear from Dennis Smith about last week's cattle on Feed Report. Tanner Bramar of NCBA will be joining us to discuss what is happening in Washington, D.C. with regard to the cattle cycle. In segment three, we're going to hear from Tim Blubaugh. He's with the Truck and Engine Manufacturers Association looking ahead to the clean trucks of tomorrow. And finally, we're going to get fired up about this year's Farm Progress Show, folks, which it's hard to believe is really just around the corner. Before we get into all of that, however, let's hear from Dennis Smith. Of course, on the 24th, the Cattle on Feed report was released. We've also seen a sell-off in the corn market really covering that same time span. And I started by asking Dennis, as you look at the rally that we've seen in the cattle market, is it because of the numbers in the Cattle on Feed report? Or is it because of the corn sell-off we've seen developing in the grain markets? I think it's a combination of both. Uh, live cattle certainly higher, I think, off the on-feed report showing placements down 2%. Not only is that a supportive number, but the breakdown on the placements indicated that placements of heavyweight animals was down at 6%. So I think that is a supportive feature to the August and the October live cattle contract. Uh, also, Mike, uh, the, the report showed that the industry marketed more cattle than what we placed during the month of May. So actual uh, on-feed inventory coming down, although still holding at 101% of a year ago. Uh, feeders sharply higher. I think, again, combination of sharply uh, lower corn market and the supportive feature of the uh, cattle on-feed report. You know, even though we saw total cattle on feed come down month over month, Dennis, I was still shocked at just the raw number of cattle we have on feed, largest for June 1st since the, the series began recording, correct? Yeah, it's a record large number. That's a fact. Uh, and again, I think it's uh, it's due to the fact that large numbers of cattle have been uh, run off of the, that dry pasture and, and what was at the time dry wheat pasture which, of course, is now uh, moving into harvest activity. But uh, the market has seen a rash of placements and bunching up cattle on feed. And again, I think, Mike, uh, the, the important thing is uh, remember the futures markets are always looking forward. And looking forward, we envision a, a lower placement rate probably for the rest of the year. And these numbers are going to change rather drastically. They are, Dennis, and you've got that lower placement expected, but marketing's, as you mentioned, continuing to stay strong, up 2% month over month. Is that where you anticipated marketing's to be for this last series? Yeah, I, I did. I was hoping they might even be up 3%, but I think we had one fewer weekday and one more Saturday in the uh, in the month of May this year versus last year. So it gets a little bit confusing, but the key or the bottom line is we do believe that feedlots are current, weights are declining, grading of uh, prime choice cattle is declining. 
uh, although it's rather confusing, Mike, because we've got this huge spread between the price of steers in the southern plains and the price of cattle in the northern region. And what's driving that? Is this we've seen a lot more cattle come on the market in the south? Is that drought has intensified, Dennis, or is there another factor at play? Well, it's 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 pretty confusing. Uh, there, there's a large number of cattle on feed in Texas reported uh, as in the date of Friday, 103 uh, percent of a year ago. Seems like uh, Texas is a, sort of the problem child, so to speak. Also, cattle are grading about 10 percent less uh, choice and prime. Uh, than the cattle in Kansas and in Nebraska are grading. So that's what, that's a couple of contributing factors there. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the actual spread is, is record-wide and, and somewhat confusing for those in the industry, including myself. All right. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that as that weird, confusing situation develops. Dennis, I want to mention, I want to look out. You mentioned the futures market looks at the futures. How are consumers holding up? What can we tell from from wholesale box beef values? Well, the beef is is topped out, but it's not moving sharply lower. So we, we believe that the, uh, the the wholesale beef complex is holding together rather well. Also keep in mind there's plenty of margin room. In other words, packers are still operating at very high profitable margins, historically very high, uh, in, in some cases perhaps as much as $200 a head. So there's a lot of room there uh, for the packers in a, uh, in a current feedlot situation to pay up for animals, to compete for the animals, yet still turn uh, and process beef cattle at a profitable level. I know it's early in the week, Dennis. We haven't seen any cash trade develop that I have noticed as of yet, but do you figure live bids this week are going to be a little higher than they were last week on the cash side? I would think so, but again, I I thought that should be the case last week, and then we traded lower in the Southern Plains. So it's a little confusing right now, and I guess I'll have to see it to believe it. But I, I, I would expect a, a firm to higher cash trade based upon everything that I'm hearing. And, and that factors in even the, the stability in the stock market of recent. Of course, recession and consumer confidence, wow, it all comes into play. And, and it's, a, it's a very complicated situation right now. It is, and we're seeing these complications play out across all markets. Dennis, while we've got you, last week we saw incredible volatility in the hog market with dollar moves, I think, at least nearly every day. What happened, and what does that kind of volatility tell you about a market? Well, hogs, in my opinion, are topping out. That is, the summer hog market's topping out because we're, we're past the good demand time frame. In other words, I think the pork demand for the 4th of July is all finished up now. Uh, while hog numbers are down, I don't think they're down as much as expected. And I think uh, the pork stocks, as far as frozen stocks, are fully adequate. And I think you're going to run into a situation where the, the hog market cools off a bit uh, into the end of summer. And that's primarily because exports, pork exports, are extremely lousy and they have been for several months. Dennis, a cool off in the lean hog market. Are we dropping from $100 here in the August down to the 80s, or could we go sub $80 here by the end of summer, early fall? 
I would not expect that that large of a drop or decline. So no, I, while I'm negative, I'm not uh, overly negative. Uh, we are seeing pig prices in China uh, moving higher. And China is the big dog. Production in China exceeds the combined production of the U.S., Canada, Germany, France, and Russia, and Brazil. Jeez. They, their but, production exceeds all of those countries combined. They're a big producer, folks. We'll have more AOA when we return. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the 4th of July edition of AOA here today. We are playing a best of show today. So we've got interviews compiled from over the past several weeks. In segment one, we heard from Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services about the cattle on feed report that was issued on the 24th. And in this segment, we're going to talk with Tanner Bramer. He's the vice president of government affairs at NCBA, and he has been tracking closely what has been under discussion in Washington, D.C. Several bills related to agriculture and specifically related to the cattle market are under discussion. And I asked Tanner, what did the Senate Ag Committee do with these bills last week? And here's what he said. Well, it was disappointing, but not altogether surprising that the Senate Agriculture Committee marked up that particular piece of legislation. Now, that that bill contains a lot of different provisions, uh, many of which NCBA supports. However, uh, the, the sponsors of this bill, despite our multiple attempts to try and make that into a product that can be supported by not just NCBA, but the American Farm Bureau Federation and a host of cattle producing organizations on the state level, uh, those, those efforts just were, were unsuccessful because uh, the sponsors did not uh, want to have that conversation with us. So uh, the bill does contain a provision which would mandate specific types of trades in the fed cattle industry. Uh, and those, those trades are negotiated style, but it's not just uh, what would constitute a negotiated trade under USDA's definition. And because it would place an undue mandate on cattle producers and the methods that they use to transact cattle, uh, we have to be opposed to this legislation. We were disappointed to see it get marked up in the Senate Agriculture Committee yesterday. Tanner, NCBA has been discussing this legislation and the ramifications of its passage for some time with your members across the country. What is it that your members might lose should this legislation pass that would hurt their ability to do business? Well, in actuality, in, in the simplest form is it would put the federal government in the position of choosing winners and losers in the marketplace. You know, this bill would require that on a regional basis, every single fed cattle transaction uh, would be subject to certain thresholds or quotas, if you will, of certain types of trade. And so if uh, we get through a covered period and, and the packers have purchased all the cattle that are, that are offered on those types of methods and they still haven't hit their threshold, they're going to need to go to some of their producers and some of their suppliers and say, hey, look, I'd like to buy your cattle, but I can't buy them the way that you want to sell them because we have to hit this arbitrary threshold that's been established by USDA. And so those producers might miss out on premiums that are attached to grids. They might lose out on some of their risk management opportunities because they might not, they might not be able to uh, give up some of those arrangements and then have to sell cattle at a later date. As we know, finished cattle, once they reach their target weight, are a perishable commodity, and they have to go to the packer uh, relatively quickly once they achieve that target weight. So ultimately, you know, we're, we're deciding, you know, between what producers have access to these critical tools and which ones 
uh, unfortunately are going to be told that they can't sell cattle the way that they want to. And it comes back to that mandatory minimum purchase requirement. Now, Tanner, I understand that uh, Senator Marshall of Kansas proposed an amendment to the bill that would eliminate that particular segment of this bill, and that amendment was pulled. Do you think that might have traction once this gets to the floor of the Senate? Well, I think assuming that the bill gets to the floor at all, that is something that I think would be pretty widely supported among senators who represent cattle states but might not serve on the Senate Agriculture Committee. You know, we heard a lot yesterday in the markup about how both this bill and the other bill that was considered are, are bipartisan uh, in nature. But I think the thing that has been less discussed is that they are also uh, subject to bipartisan opposition once you get off the committee. We saw senators from Nevada uh, weigh in in a formal way, both Democrats saying that they oppose the bill, and you have a host of Republicans from cattle states that are also opposed to government or to government mandates. Um, and so I think that in the event that the bill reaches the floor, which I don't know what the likelihood of is just given how much how little time is left uh, on the calendar this year, uh, that, that could very well be a discussion that senators want to have in the context of the full Senate. All right. And you mentioned we don't know if this is going to make it to the floor. The next step would be, though, a floor vote from the Senate and then uh, some kind of, of uh, conference with the House and the Senate versions. Are there big differences between the House and Senate versions of this bill? So uh, fortunately, the Cattle Price Discovery and Transparency Act does not have a House companion which has advanced through the legislative process. It's been introduced, uh, but it has not had a hearing or a markup in the House Agriculture Committee. Uh, on the special investigator side, on the other hand, however, that, that bill obviously did clear the House of Representatives a couple weeks ago. Um, and Senator Grassley in the markup yesterday offered an amendment which would bring that bill more so in line with uh, what the House passed last week or the week before that. Um, and so it's it's unclear. We haven't seen the, the specific language to know whether or not that would require them to have some sort of a conference or whether they can uh, make those technical revisions before it gets on the floor and negate the need to do that. Um, but again, in the, in the U.S. Senate, you have to get 60 votes in order to invoke cloture and proceed to final passage of this legislation or any bill that comes up in the Senate. Um, and I, I don't know, again, what the likelihood of that is, just given uh, how, how controversial these issues are off the committee and how little time there is remaining between here and when Congress goes uh, on recess in August and then goes home to campaign for the midterm elections. Well, Tanner, you raised the issue of that meat special investigator, Bill Meat and Poultry Special Investigator. Now, that was also marked up yesterday, as you mentioned. What, were there any big changes to that bill during the discussion? No, there, there were some additional amendments that were offered and then subsequently withdrawn. Uh, the only amendment that ended up getting adopted was that one from Senator Grassley, which just makes a few technical changes to make it more, more similar to the version that passed the House of Representatives. But it is still a, a bill that is duplicative. It's a solution in search of a problem, and it would uh, ultimately result in less effective enforcement of the Packers and Stockyards Act in the form that it's currently uh, marked up in. Tanner, that is a big point. Why would this bill reduce in less enforcement of the PSA? Well, you have two different agencies at USDA, should this bill get passed, that are charged with doing the exact same thing. The Packers and Stockyards Division, which is an existing agency of USDA, it's been around for over 100 years in some form or fashion, and they enforce the act in its entirety, including competition matters and including among meat packers, which are uh, regulated entities under the Packers and Stockyards Act. 
if we create this brand new office and charge them with doing the exact same thing, we're creating these blurred jurisdictional lines that's just going to set up confrontation between Packers and Stockyards and the special investigator's office over who actually has jurisdiction over the matter. And those conflicts will take time to resolve. And then in addition to that, this bill continues to be unfunded which means that they are going to have to steal resources away from other critical programs at AMS, like the Packers and Stockyards Division, in order to have the necessary resources to execute that mission of that special investigator's office. Uh, so it'll result in less effective enforcement between those jurisdictional battles and then even from a resources perspective, because we know that the Packers and Stockyards Division hasn't received a substantial budget increase in over a decade, and they are, by their own estimates, about 52% underfunded and 40% understaffed. Okay. Yeah, that would create some some trade-offs in enforcement, I think it's fair to say. Tanner, I did want to ask you about that amendment introduced by Grassley. You mentioned it would conform the Senate bill to the House bill. He also added language that the investigator would need to be a senior career employee at USDA. What's the thinking behind that phrase? How does that change the enforcement or the, the, the anything with this bill? Well, unfortunately, that particular amendment did not alleviate any of the livestock industries, NCBA included, concern with the underlying legislation. Uh, that, that amendment uh, specifically mirrors one that was offered by Congressman Costa in the House markup. And the logic there is that it would create this position as a senior career as opposed to someone who is politically appointed and reports to the secretary in a political context. As a career position, the idea is that that person would be a little bit more established. They would maintain that position uh, through changes in administration or changes in the White House, and they would uh, be, be less inclined to follow the whims or the political agendas of whoever happens to be the Secretary of Agriculture at the time. But again, that doesn't okay. alleviate some of the underlying concerns we have elsewhere. Absolutely. Tanner, this bill you mentioned has already passed the House. It's now out of the Senate Ag Committee. Do you think it's going to make it to the floor of the Senate before they head to recess? You know, a lot of things are going to need to come together in order for either of these two bills to get their time on the Senate floor. Um, you know, the, the Senate just announced that they have uh, that bipartisan gun package that they're working on. There's a lot of other issues that need to come before the full Senate. And, of course, that 60-vote threshold is going to be difficult to achieve on both of these pieces of legislation because of that bipartisan opposition once you get off, uh, off the committee. What I imagine will probably happen is if they're going to move it at all, it will need to get packaged together with some other legislation that is viewed as must-pass and will ultimately need to get moved before they all go. Well, our thanks to Tanner Bramer there, the Vice President of Government Affairs at NCBA. We had that conversation on June 22nd for you folks playing along at home. When AOA returns here on this 4th of July holiday, we'll be coming back with Tim Bluebaugh from the Truck and Engine Manufacturers Association to discuss the Clean Trucks plan. Spoke with Tim last Friday, the 24th, and we'll have that conversation when AOA returns. information farmers and ranchers need to know AOA now back to Mike Pearson welcome back to AOA ladies and gentlemen here on this 4th of July hopefully all of you are out there taking advantage 
of this holiday. And I understand a lot of you are probably working. Those of you with livestock are taking care of them. Those of you who need to get goods to or from some destination, you might be out there running a truck today, running some tractors, getting some hay put up. Folks, we salute all of you here on this 4th of July. If you would, if you're up to something interesting, find us on Twitter. You can find us at AOA underscore talk show. Let us know how are you celebrating 4th of July on your farm, ranch, or just around the home. Next up on today's episode, we're going to go back to June 24th to a conversation I had with Tim Bluebaugh. He's an executive vice president of the Truck and Engine Manufacturers Association, and we dug in to this proposed clean trucks plan from the EPA. Let's talk about what the EPA is working on with this clean trucks plan. Tim, what are their overarching goals? Yeah, what EPA is trying to do, Mike, is they've proposed a rule a couple months ago, and they're expecting to finalize it this year to significantly reduce the oxides of nitrogen emissions, the NOx emissions from medium and heavy-duty trucks. These are the emissions. The NOx is a precursor to ozone. It, it produces smog, and they're trying to take uh, and reduce the existing emissions from those new trucks. All right, so working on getting that air cleaned up, removing particulates. How has EPA, how do they intend to lower the total NOx emissions? Well, it's right now it's only a proposed rule, and they have a couple options. They plan to, the option one would reduce the emissions in two steps for new trucks built in 2027 and further reduced in 2031. And option two is a single step program to reduce the NOx emissions only in 2027. Uh, what they will do with this rule is drive, primarily drive new after treatment emissions technologies. Okay, by that you mean for folks that, you know, we're familiar with DEF, would it be something comparable to that? Yeah, in fact, it will use the selective catalytic reduction technology, the SCR technology that was that was first deployed in 2010 that requires the diesel exhaust fluid, the DEF fluid to make it work. Uh, it will be an enhanced version of that, probably require greatly uh, increased consumption of DEF in the after treatment. Okay, and that would be true with, with either option, should EPA pursue either one. We're looking at using more DEF in the engines. Yeah, both options will use more DEF. Uh, the first option is modeled after California's omnibus NOx rule that was finalized last year, and, and we have some great concerns. We represent the, the truck and engine manufacturers, and we have some great concerns that that approach is feasible and implement, implementable. We think well, let's talk about those concerns then, Tim. This option one, the two-phased approach, looking at a 90% reduction in NOx emissions. What, what are the concerns that you're hearing from engine manufacturers? What are the technological uh, you know, hindrances or hurdles uh, with regard to option one? Yeah, our current technology that's been in place since 2010 is very close to zero, and this rule would cut it still closer to zero. As you get closer and closer to zero, it becomes very difficult to do things like actually measure the emissions. The, the technologies to measure the emissions can't measure it that low. Or the manufacturers need compliance margin so that they can account for some variability in production. But as you get closer and closer to zero, it becomes impossible to have that compliance margin. In effect, what manufacturers have to do is they have to get lower than the standard so that they can account for the variability and still be in compliance. When you're close to zero, there's no room to go lower.
That certainly makes sense. Of course, we've got the law of diminishing returns. As you mentioned there, as things get closer and closer to zero, getting those extra gains can be so hard. And I'm wondering if we're, if we're running more def, particularly with option one, what sort of horsepower requirements on the engine could be required to power just the NOx removal systems? Yeah, uh, Mike, it's not so much horsepower, but it's cost. This the DEF will of course cost a truck operator more money. We estimate it to be about $10,000 in increased DEF costs over the life of the vehicle. And the upfront purchase price to purchase this new technology and some of the warranty requirements that, are, that, that EPA has proposed could increase the cost of a heavy duty truck more than $31,000. Tim, you mentioned that option one is modeled after California's law. Is that law in place and how are manufacturers working to comply with it today? Yeah, the law was finalized last year and it, so it is in place. It doesn't go into effect until 2024 and has another step down in 2027 and again in 2031. Uh, right now, manufacturers are very concerned about the the viability of the diesel engine in the on-highway market in California based on this law. Right now, we do not think it's implementable. Wow. What what does that mean long-term? There's a lot of trucks in California. There's a lot of goods that need to get where they're going. How do we work through this as an industry? We we are trying to work through it. There are different options. Some some uh, manufacturers have looked at natural gas as as a as a path forward. Um, I know the manufacturers are working very hard to try to figure out how to comply. Uh, but right near right now, there is no clear path. Wow. Okay. Well, let's talk about that option two. The EPA has proposed the single step 75% reduction in NOx emissions. Technically, is that feasible today, roughly with the uh, technology we have on hand? It, it will require new technology, but we believe that option two could serve as the basis of a workable and implementable final rule. We think it can be achievable with realistic new technology that won't reach the high costs that we're seeing, we're expected with option one. And so we think it's technologically achievable and commercially achievable. Uh, fleets have to be willing to buy these new trucks. And if they're, new, if they're too expensive, the fleets will avoid them. Tim, I think that's a crucial point, and I'm glad you brought it up. The idea that all of these improvements that we're making in new trucks only make sense if trucking firms get out there and buy the new trucks. If they're too expensive and they keep running their older models, they're going to continue to pollute. Are there, in the California law or perhaps under the EPA proposal, would existing trucks be grandfathered in or would they have to be retrofitted to comply? Yeah, that's a great point, Mike. These rules, both the California rule and EPA's proposed rule, will only affect new truck sales. So the existing fleet of trucks will not be affected by these rules. And that's our concern, is that if the new rules uh, are unworkable or too expensive and fleets don't buy the new trucks, they'll just continue to operate the old trucks longer. They'll invest in maintaining them instead of buying new products, and we won't see the environmental benefits. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. We've got to get the new technology out there. Tim, I understand with these different options proposed by the EPA, there is the NOx emissions component, but then there's also an increase in useful life period. How do those get factored into the research that's being done? 
Yeah, that's one of the most challenging aspects of both the California rule and the EPA proposal is that they're increasing the useful life. That's the period of time within which a manufacturer must maintain compliance to the standard. So because of deterioration in the, the after-treatment systems, the, the emissions will increase slightly over time. And so the manufacturer has to aim below the standard so that over the useful life, when it gets to the end of the useful life, it will still be in compliance. They're proposing, EPA's proposing, extending the useful life a great deal to the point where the manufacturer may have to replace the after-treatment system sometime within that useful life in order to deal with the deterioration and remain in compliance. And if they have to do that, they'll have to add that cost up front to the price of the vehicle. And it could be, a, it, that's what's driving the, the $31,000. Ah, okay, that makes sense, Tim. And as long as we're talking costs, of course, my assumption is anytime we're adding things to the engine, it's going to take, you know, potentially more power to make these things work. I'm curious, what would be the impact on, on fuel mileage as these improvements get worked through the, uh, the engine technology? That's a great question, Mike. We're we're not sure that the jury's still out. Uh, we've been following EPA's demonstration studies that they're doing at a research lab in San Antonio, and it has shown increases in fuel consumption, but it's also shown decreases. And that's because one of the technologies that EPA is looking at is cylinder deactivation, that will both decrease emissions and decrease fuel assumption, fuel consumption. So right now, the jury's still out. We're not sure that it will actually increase fuel consumption. It may be, it may not. Okay, all right. Tim, as you look out, this rule has been proposed. What, it, what are your expectations for finalization, implementation? Do we have an idea on a timeline? EPA is trying to wrap this rule up this year. We're working closely with them to try to get them to finalize a reasonable, implementable, effective rule, and we're hopeful that we'll be able to do that. They are on a, uh, a very fast track to get this done. We fully expect them to finalize the rule this year and have it implemented with model year 2027 new vehicles. All right, Tim, EMA has been keeping track of this issue, putting out some great information on the impacts of it. Where can folks go to keep up to date with the work you're doing? Yeah, we recommend that people go. We set up a special website for this. It is cleantruckfacts.org, and we have a ton of information there and ways you can get involved and stay up to date. Well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show and for filling us in. We'll continue to watch this issue as trucking remains a vital force for American industry. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks much, Mike. I enjoyed it. Well, that was Tim Blue by EVP of the Truck and Engine Manufacturers Association. And folks, when AOA returns, we're going to talk with Matt Youngman and Jeff Miller about Farm Progress Show 2022. Hard to believe, but it is just around the corner. Stick around for more AOA. information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson.
Welcome back, folks, and thanks for making AOA a part of your day here on this 4th of July holiday this year. You know, last week, USDA released two big reports last Thursday. Visit last week's episodes Thursday and Friday to hear about those. We spoke with Arlen Suderman to help break down those numbers. But one of the closely watched parts was planted acres for this spring. Of course, it was a challenging growing season for a lot of growers. However, I do know there were some growers who got their corn in the ground up around Boone, Iowa, home of the Farm Progress Show Site 2022. We spoke with Matt Youngman from Farm Progress Show and Jeff Miller of Trelleborg about their excitement for this year's show. And I asked Matt, how do the crops look up there? You know, ironically, I just got an email from one of our, our host farmers and everything there looks good. It's uh, it's overhead high and, you know, it didn't get in the ground until mid-May. We were all ready to go at the end of April, but Mother Nature had some different plans in central Iowa, but it got in the ground in mid-May and we're getting maximum heat units uh, in, in the 10-day forecast. So that's great news. We're getting caught up and looking forward to utilizing those acres for field demonstrations. That's right. It's going to be here before we know it. Farm Progress Show, August 30th, 31st, and September 1st. We're also joined in this segment by Jeff Miller. He's the Marketing Communications Advisor at Trelleborg. And Jeff, are you getting excited to get to Farm Progress Show this year? Uh, we are very excited to get the Farm Progress Show. Uh, it's been, what, four years since we've been there last, and I just can't wait to get back on site. It is going to be so exciting, and Matt, it is hard to believe it's been four years since a live show has happened at the Boone Grounds. What has changed on that show site? Will folks, uh, will it look different if it's been four years since uh, they last came up to Farm Progress? It, it certainly has, and, and most of that is driven by you know, the changes in agriculture, the changes in companies who have merged together. The last time we were in Boone, there was a separate Bear and Monsanto exhibits. There were separate Corteva and Pioneer. Um, there, there's just been a lot of, of changes on that show site, you know, the, and, and uh, outside of exhibitors moving around and making the exhibit field map look differently, we've had traffic routing improvements. We, we've gone from from two lanes to three lanes on Highway 17 right there on the west side of the show site. So we're going to have better traffic access. Uh, the place is just getting better and better. And, and realistically, a four-year break has given a real nice break for the exhibit field. The grass looks beautiful. The parking lots look fantastic. Everything is well-rested after a four-year break and, and ready to have a, a great show. That's right. Ready for those crowds to tromp down that grass once again. Jeff, from Trelleborg's perspective, it's been four years since you've been at the Farm Progress Show. What makes it worthwhile for you as a company to be there and to be talking to farmers in person? Oh, it's that's an easy one. Uh, it, it's all about being face-to-face -face with the customer. Uh, we thoroughly enjoy getting in front of uh, the farmers to really to find out what's on their mind and to be able to pass along some knowledge and education in the world of tires to them. It really comes down to just that personal interaction that we all have missed for the past few years. Yes, we certainly have. And folks, I'm very excited. We'll be broadcasting AOA live from the Trelleborg booth each day at the Farm Progress Show. So be sure to mark your calendars for 9 to 10. You can stop by and connect with us, meet us in person. And Jeff, as that is happening, of course, Trelleborg has a lot of other things going on. What else are you guys bringing to the show this year? Well, in the booth itself, we're uh, kind of really excited about changing um, how we're going to present at the show 
uh, we're going to focus on educational topics, and not just tire educational topics, but topics that are important to uh, the growers and the farmers and producers that you have come into the show. You know, such as we we want to have sessions on um, carbon sequestration. Oh boy, carbon markets, sequestration, uh, precision agriculture. You know how to lower your input costs, and most importantly, soil health. I mean, Trelleborg is a firm believer that we take care of the environment; uh, it will take care of us. So we want to be able to pass along every bit of knowledge that we can to help them along. Absolutely. And I know the Trelleborg Mitas team, one of the ways you can serve or care about the environment is reducing compaction, adding flotation there to that farm equipment as it's moving across the field. Jeff, I understand Mitas is going to have a bit of a flotation demonstration as well this year. We are. We're going to be back again this year um, with uh, the floating tractor in the retention pond that's, um, Matt, is that east of the show site? That is exactly right. East of east of Gates. Two and three. Okay, so we are uh, again floating the tractor, swimming around the pond. And one of the questions we always get asked is, "Why are you doing that?" It uh, it's just such an extreme example of flotation. And by all means, we don't um, want anybody to be driving their tractor into a pond. Uh, it's just everything that you've ever been taught about driving a tractor and, and soft, muddy, and wet grounds, uh, you just don't do it. But we do, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, ho hopefully everybody else will, will get a kick out of it. But it really, uh, we want to start the conversation of the importance of flotation uh, when it comes to the world of, of soil compaction, like you had mentioned earlier. So it's just an extreme demonstration of what tires can do. That's right. And it is a demonstration, folks. Don't try this at home. Matt, of course, we got to get geared up. It can get registered today. Fill us in on the details. What's the website and uh, how should folks, what's the best way to get registered? Uh, best way to, to do everything is to go to farmprogressshow.com. We, you know, we have everything there and we'll be filling the content there as, as we're able to make new announcements and, and upcoming things to, to add to the content list for the show. But you can go there register and buy your tickets in advance so you've got quick entry into the show um, you can book your room there's a link there to visit centraliowa.com still plenty of rooms within about 30 miles staying in Ankeny or Johnston um, and and everything else you can download the app uh, and, and follow along there and then also all of our social media channels too farmprogressshow.com folks get that on your calendar come to Boone hang out with us from AOA in the Trelleborg booth each day we'll be broadcasting live big thanks to Matt Youngman and Jeff Miller for joining us here on today's episode folks tomorrow AOA is back live on Tuesday the 5th we're going to talk politics with our friend Jackie Fatka we're also going to talk meat demand with Glenn Tonser of Kansas State University we'll see you tomorrow for more AOA